I mean, you know, really the bottom line is that this this has sort of been you, you call it a dead period, but it's also been a period in which there's maybe that's been dead from the standpoint of like meaningful competitive you know events you know like we've already had the super bowl we just had the all-star game but there's a pause now. well the all-star game yeah that's not really like a that's an exhibition event. it's an exhibition yeah um you know we won't have uh, another championship series until what like june you know nba so you know there's that whole thing but you know while it maybe hasn't been a lot of highlights as far as like you know, competitive games and things of that nature. It's certainly been a lot of stuff going on. It just, I guess, controversy. Just a lot of storylines that, you know, are like kind of off the field, off the court kind of storylines. It's funny how, how when like the competitive games go away, the distraction goes away and kind of the curtain gets peeled back and the attention goes to the things that have always been there, the controversies that have always been there, but now they get the spotlight. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> the controversies that have, have always been there. And then, yeah, so it's a, it's the microscope uh, in order to, to really create a story. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the thing with the media, right? That's, we love and we hate the media. The media is sort of a representative of the people in, in some ways. Yeah, it's but, a reflection of us. You know, it's also an institution, right? There are corporate stakeholders involved, right, with what happens with coverage and stories and you know how stories are represented and those things definitely have an impact and and i think what what's really kind of problematic is the profit motive behind you know corporate media is going to drive you know sort of attention towards stories that you know are, are I, don't, I don't know we get you question the value of them as far as public consumption and you know should we really even be investigating things like this you know personal stories of athletes and stuff like that but these are stories that they kind of zap at our amygdalas at our, at our emotion center and that's what takes our attention when you hear a story that is controversial you're like "Ooh, it's like clickbait it's going to attract you to that a lot more easily impulsively than if it was a well thought out article headline that had to do with uh, some kind of run-of-the-mill story no but if it's something that says so-and-so is caught cheating it's like ooh, we ooh, i want to see this and it, it, it rings to our emotion center so it's we <sighs> right the headline we, the headline the media right. in a way is like a beast and and we feed the beast with our attention so as individuals we have i mean ideally we can't blame it all on the media because we have to be more selective with who we give our attention to yeah we do and it's hard it's harder to use our frontal lobes and our higher level of thinking to control where we send our attention to be more mindful. That's mindfulness at the end of the day. It's, it's so much easier to just kind of go back to our primal instincts and then kind of be attracted to the most, the shiniest object or the, the juiciest headline or the thing that's, it's our blood boiling. That's right. And they know that they know that, you know, these, these media uh, analysts and, and experts, they know what's going to get people going. You know, they they do they have the the the, the analytics. You know, the, the they do the studies, they do the research. Yeah. Well, on a lighter note, what's been circulating at the, all all the first takes and all the the talk shows right now is the goat debate. It's Michael Jordan, LeBron James. Like people like that's right. Any dead period, they love it. They love yeah. that debate. When you see Michael Jordan and LeBron at the All Star game together, we gotta 
all right, we got it. Let's just let's just run five consecutive days about who's the goat and and why, because we know that that's going to get people heated because we take sides and just like in politics, we take sides and just like with the goat debate, we take sides. We take, we have like physical ownership over our thoughts and ideas and opinions on who's better. And then we're next thing we know, we're just eating each other's asses because we're, we're just emotional and and not thinking straight. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But you know, it's, it's, it's that, that's sort of why we love sports, right? Kind of keeps us on the, the edge of our seat right? It's all entertainment at the end of the day. So if we're not being entertained by the athletes on the field or on the court, then we have to be entertained by, you know, sort of the media circus around those athletes. Um, And, you know, if we're not talking about their professional lives, we're talking about their personal lives. And, uh, you know, that, that does, you know, kind of bring us to a number of, you know, key headlines that have, have kind of come up recently um, that we're going to kind of talk about throughout this podcast today, right? Yeah, this is a long-winded intro. This is episode 70, by the way, and we're back. This is our uh, February episode this year, 2022. Yeah. Um, Isn't that something? It's, uh, we're toning it back a little bit. I think we mentioned it, quality over quantity here. Um, our goal is to release monthly monthly episodes. And obviously, if things come up that are important, we're going to hop on and talk about it. And today... Uh, obviously, with coming to the close of February, Black History Month, we're going to touch on that. And there's obviously been a lot in the news with regards to, to Brian Flores and the racial disparities within the the coaching ranks and, and the front offices of the NFL. So we're going to talk touch on that. We're going to shine a spotlight on Black athletes in the Winter Olympics that have kind of broke records and broke glass ceilings. And NFL came to an end. We just had a Super Bowl high profile athletes announce their retirement from the game. So we're going to touch on that a little bit of individual greatness, a little bit of team dynamics and team building. I think we're going to try to touch on a little bit of the situation in the NFL with regards to the racial disparities and how that factors into team building and having a cohesive organization that's both productive and, and creating winning teams, but also something that a city can take pride in and something, a team that represents the community in a, in a fair way, in a proud way. So, um, and we're also going to talk a little bit about now with the Olympics ending, the Super Bowl ending, there's a sports hangover that occurs. Individual athletes face that, this at the end of the seasons. We've talked about this with when athletes retire and how difficult it is to transition, but it's, you'll find out today, it's especially difficult to transition from your Olympics ending because that's every four years. And um, teams that lo- lose the Super Bowl often have a, Oh, I don't want to spoil it. So let's go ahead. Do you want to go ahead and jump into this? Let's jump in. Let's do it. Let me ask you this. Because we, we, Armin and I, we like to take detours. So I want to ask Armin this question. And we alluded to it a little bit when we jumped into the intro earlier. But you mentioned sports as a form of entertainment. And I think that's why we all love sports because it is entertaining at the end of the day. That's why we watch. That's why so many people across the, the world are so attracted to sports because we can feel entertained and we can feel excitement and sadness and, and anxiety when we're just sitting on our couches watching our favorite player, or our favorite teams play. I think that's the number one reason why people like sports. But at the end of the day, I think we're seeing nowadays 
this transition between sports becoming an not just entertainment for some people, but also sports franchises, teams, individual athletes becoming like we've talked about before, more than athletes, more than just entertainers, but pillars of their community, role models, spokesmen on injustices, activists. And there's been a huge pushback. We're kind of at this kind of still like a breaking point when it comes to that. Um, and I just want to know what your, what your, what your thoughts were on that is, is sports best kept as just pure, a pure form of entertainment, or do you like your sports mixed in with, I don't want to say politics, because obviously you throw politics at anything. No one's going to like that, but do you like to see behind the curtain? Do you like to know about the dirty, dark secrets of the organizations, the players, or do you like to know what their stances are on certain things that are going on in their life? We got to, I think we got to see a little bit of that with who was and who wasn't vaccinated during the NFL season. Um, and now with social media, we're seeing more and more and more of that. So I was wondering what, what your take is on that. Yeah. I mean, it's such a great question. It's such a great question, especially for a true sports fan like myself. Because what it does when you hear a question like that is it kind of takes you back to the beginning when you first fell in love with sports. And of course, for me, that's childhood. And yeah, I was probably like five years old when I, I became a fan of like prof just watching professional sports, um, you know, NBA, NFL, just kind of being captivated by their talent. Um, you know, like at that age, you're, you're still, you're still kind of like an imaginary phase, you know, like your imagination goes wild, you know, fantasies about what you can be in life. And, um, you know, you, you idealize sort of her heroic figures and, you know, athletes were heroic figures for me. Um, like there are for like a, a lot of kids, right. I mean, you want to be like, like for me, it was like, I want to be like Mike. That was what it was all about. Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, um, and I know like kids nowadays, you know, it's like about Steph and, and LeBron. Oh, yeah. And LeBron. You see that all-star game? Absolutely. You know, and, and I bet those kids love when he, he turns around when he shoots after he shoots the three and does a little smirk that <sighs> it just looks so cool. Yeah, yeah, the, well, for sure. That confidence, that swagger. Um, mm -hmm. And it's and it's a and it's and it's not like a, an aggressive kind of confidence like the way that Jordan used to have you know it's more like fun and and you know positive right uplifting um and it's different energy I think people are really into that um but you know that's the thing it's like there's all these emotions um that come along with your connection to to sports because it's not just about the game you know, you learn the game and that's an important part of it. That was kind of brings you into it. Maybe even play the game yourself. But then it's like this sort of like connection you have to the performers, you know, the athletes and, and the teams. And especially if it's like a local thing, like, like your, your hometown or whatever, like, you know, you just, you, 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 you're a part of it. You get swept up in it, right? You want to, you want to, you want to, you know, be with them when they're down, uh, and and of course celebrate them with them when they're up and they're winning. You know, in in smaller towns especially, like every everybody kind of rallies around their teams, and I think that emotional connection, it you know, it, it, especially over time as that develops, 
and grows, it's like, you know, you, you're no longer just kind of looking at these, these, these things that are happening as just a purely objective circumstances. Like for example, if your favorite athlete were to get injured and, and, and weren't able to be a part of like, you know, uh, the team's success, that that's going to be a bummer for you. Um, if they have like a personal issue in their lives that is happening, that's being reported on, like, of course, you know, you're going to be drawn to that. Um, and, and, you know, if, 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 for example, you know, something happens where, you know, take, take like a, you know, like Lance Armstrong, right. The Lance Armstrong story or like the Marion Jones scenario, right. Where it's like, these are, are, you know, your heroes, people you really look up to. Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire. You follow them, you know, you're, you're part of their sort of lives, right. You're following them on social media and these different things and, 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 and it's like, it's a part of your, your life. And then there's just like this kind of these, this huge disappointment, right? Or, you know, these, these, this huge level of euphoria that you experience when they're winning or, you know, they earn some big award, you know, and you just get, you get swept up in it. And, and the media definitely knows, you know, how to kind of perpetuate these, these, uh, these themes and these stories and just kind of keep, you know, keep the good times rolling. And this is yeah, sports media, any type of media at this point, it used to be just localized to sports and, and sports for the most part is kind of, that was the silo where it's okay to, to play to the emotions and to get fired up. Cause it's all in fun. It's all entertainment at the end of the day, but obviously we see it in all types, all forms of media nowadays. And, and so much emotion is tied up into politics and, and, and what have you. Um, and it, it can be very div divisive. And I think the frustrating thing is obviously as a kid, you were looking up to, to Michael Jordan. I was looking up to people like King Griffey Jr. with the backwards hat and the swag. And it was just it was so cool. Uh, initially attracted me to, to him and to, the, to baseball, quite frankly, and then Penny Hardaway to, to basketball as well. And then eventually as you get older, you kind of, and you become adult and, and you see you become older than the athletes, your relationship changes to, to, to the sports itself. And, and as a, your relationship, as a, you become a different type of fan, but you still kind of keep that, that same childlike enthusiasm towards the game, especially if you played the sport as a kid, a lot of the things that I still see nowadays is though, and we've talked about this before is that there's certain fans, fully formed adults that they really only allow themselves to feel a full range of emotions through vicariously through their sports teams so when the dallas cowboys do really good that's or win a super bowl that's the most excited you'll ever see them and when they lose they're the most miserable you ever see them or they'll, they'll show sadness or anger and outside of that in their normal lives they kind of just suppress their emotions so then entertain this this form of entertainment sports becomes an outlet for emotion which can certainly be positive in some ways but in a lot of ways it can be detrimental what's so interesting yeah, no, it, it's fascinating because, um, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about the same type of relationship that many of us would have as fans to like entertainers, you know, vocalists uh, and dancers and, you know, folks like that, that we may follow. And I mean, it's these people, yeah, certainly they go on tour. Michael Jackson. Um, I guess you can kind of follow their tour schedule or something like that. Um, and, you know, certainly you like, track when they're releasing a new album right and you you might talk to your friends about like you know this this track is so cool or whatever but 
I mean, it's not as if like you have a whole media circus kind of like following them, like, you know, for like an entire, I don't know, stretch of like four or five months um, and kind of like giving you the step by step, day by day, uh, you know, kind of perspective of what's going on with them and, you know, what their, their wins and losses are and everything like that. Like, we don't really get that type of perspective. Unless you're Kanye West. Yeah, I mean, right. It, it, but it's just interesting because how sports, you know, because of the because of how it's like this kind of like this like ongoing show. It's like a, it's like Broadway, a Broadway musical, but rather than lasting a week or two, you know, it lasts for like four or five months, right? It's like every day, it's like a new show, um, with you know a completely different performance, right? It's not like the same thing. Um, so it's just ripe right for entertainment and just entertainment value is just you know ever flowing and seemingly ever increasing yeah and but then these athletes become lightning rods for not only praise and they get put on this pedestal but they can become lightning rods for hate and disparaging remarks and that's why i think it's important as as you get older and ideally you do this as a kid to to be able to see the, the, an individual athlete as an individual, to see a, a, a sports franchise, not as just a, f- a form of entertainment, but this is a, speci- specifically if you live in, like you're rooting for the team that's in your community, this is a big bit, bu- this is a business that represents your community, that employs a lot of individuals that live in your community. This community, this is something that brings people together. So it's more than just entertainment. This is something that, that I, in its purest form connects you to, to those around you. And, and yes, it does. I think we don't want to just be fans who only get up for our team when they're winning. Obviously that helps, but it's something where when winning or losing, this is why I love fan bases like the Chicago Cubs, even though I'm not a Chicago Cubs fan, I really appreciate that, that organization. And when I say that organization, it's not just the team or the coaches or the owners, um, that's probably lower on the totem pole, but it's more the, the fans, the community. Like they they have been with that team through all the losses, and they it got paid off with a recent World Series victory. But it it wasn't just predicated on how good the team is. They still have loyal fans. So now, as we move into this this kind of new wave of player empowerment, seeing players as individuals. Um, and also seeing these franchises as not only forms of entertainment, but forms of social progression and businesses that hold so much social clout and social power and influence. I'd like to see these businesses, these forms of entertainment do a better job of being more inclusive and representing the nation as a whole and maybe shining more light on the disparities and the inequalities that still do exist in this nation. I know people say, keep your politics out of sports. And I'm not talking about politics. You can make it political if you want, but quite frankly, it'd be nice for these franchises, these multi-million, sometimes billion dollar franchises. Most of the times billion dollar franchises nowadays. Exactly. Be able to use their influence, not only to entertain, because that's always going to be there, but I think there is a way to, to entertain, but also continue to push forward for what you see fit as a way, a way to make things better in the world. Yeah. 
So you're not only entertaining people, but you're also doing something else. Yeah. No, but the responsibility that you're describing is is almost inevitable at this point. Um, it's almost like a, it kind of should be like a requirement for these organizations because you know, like as a as a kind of a business, as a brand, as as sort of like a a market, uh, sports and entertainment has just grown tremendously over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. It's just, you know, these, uh, these franchises, as you were alluding, are in many cases, billion dollar companies. Okay. Billion dollar brands, billions, multiple billions. And we're talking about franchises that franchises that don't necessarily even have like a, a long track record of success. Like, you know, we know that the Clippers were one of the NBA teams that were most recently sold. Yeah, they're shooting up. And uh, they, they, they probably are one of the least successful franchises uh, in NBA history. And yet, you know, they're, they, they valued in, you know, uh, in what was it, $4 billion? What was the number? We should probably look that up. But it's, 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 it's amazing. And when you think about that, and you mentioned the influence you mentioned that it's a these are global brands now, so they're you know they're touching people worldwide. Yeah, they were they were purchased um, just shy of two billion back to the fourteen. Now valued at over three billion. That's amazing. You know, I mean that's that's huge, and that's one of you could say the smaller markets, right? In terms of yeah, they're in Los Angeles, but they are the you know kind of like little brother franchise of, of course the the big huge Los Angeles Lakers franchise so you know we could only imagine what that franchise would be appraised at you know uh, the the Lakers by comparison so when you when you consider the the gravity uh the gravitational pull of what a multi-billion dollar global brand you know can can have it's like you understand that they're they're going to be influencing a lot of people and um, when you have that type of power, you know you, you have to have responsibility, right? You you have to be re- you have to be accountable um, for your product, right? And for the ways that it influences the public, and that would be the case for any institution, any any company, right? That that grows to a level in which you know they are impacting people in a significant way, right? It's just a responsibility. It's, it's ethics. Um, and, and not only that, but you, you also mentioned like these, this organization is, is a reflection of the community. They are supported by the community that they serve. It's, it's, a, it's a community service in a sense, right? Um, and there's an obligation. And part of that obligation, like, really any uh, sort of workforce, you know, any, any, anything, any institution, any organization, the American workforce, you know, is a workplace with ethical standards uh, in terms of hiring practice, right? We will not discriminate on the basis of race, color, gender, right? Sexual preference, you know, right? These, this is a, a, a universal standard. And certainly, whether it's a private institution or not, if, if you are a global brand 
um, that receives you know your sort of proceeds and revenues globally with a massive influence and you're all over the media and available for mass consumption, there's absolutely a responsibility. And, um, and I think the responsibility is to the people that you serve. So in that regard, we sort of, I, I guess, have the premise for this very, very controversial issue that has recently come up in the, in the NFL, right? That for us, uh, the sports like MDs, it, 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 it sort of, you know, it sort of stirs up several different pots. Um, one of which is team dynamics, mm -hmm. right? The, and the influence of the coach, the coaching staff uh, on team dynamics, right? So it's something we, we, we care a lot about with regards to mental fitness and sports psychiatry. I think another thing that it brings up is, is this, you know, notion of what a coach is about. We, we talk all about coaching. We have several podcasts on, you know, the importance of coaching, the value of coaching, how it creates champions. So is a minority hire. Ooh, check that, check that out, right? That that's a, a, a controversial term, a minority hire. Is that going to be something that is going to be a positive or negative have a positive or negative influence on uh, a team's ability to have success and to win at the highest level. Yeah. I, th I think, Armin, you'd agree with this. Like, may the, the best individual for the job get the job at the end of the day. And I think it's all about opportunity. And I think what we're seeing is there's, there just hasn't been a lot of opportunity for, for black coaches in the NFL. Obviously, right now there's only two. And that's not counting the Miami Dolphins' new hire, McDaniel. This is all coming to light with the, the Brian Flores, who who recently was fired from the Miami Dolphins, and he filed a racial discrimination lawsuit against the NFL and three of their teams, including the Miami Dolphins. And this is someone who who started um, with the Dolphins in 2019, and started off pretty rough. His his record over the three years, 24 and 25, but. He finished the last two years um, with winning seasons. And matter of fact, I think he won like nine games in a row this past year when you could tell if you watched the Dolphins and they weren't really that good of a football team, but they rallied around their coach and they rallied around each other. And then they kind of almost backed into the playoffs there at the end of the year, not backed him, but got in. Um, but they didn't. And he lost his job. It was reported that the, the owner was kind of the season before was – was trying to incentivize him losing um, with hopes to get the number one pick so they could get Joe Burrow. I.e. tanking. Yeah, but that didn't happen. That was against his principles. So I think anyone who who pays attention to the football knows Brian Flores is a great coach. It comes from the Bill, Pel Bill Belichick coaching tree. Um, a lot of people are saying he is probably the the one that's going to be most likely to 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 take over for Belichick when he does retire. Um, but he was out, out of a job and he obviously was a, was a one of the top priorities to to get hired, one of the top candidates to get hired. But instead of um, seeking those vacancies, although he did seek the vacancies, I think it was Belichick himself actually texting the wrong Brian, saying "Congrats on the Giants' job" when he in fact had not even interviewed for them yet. Um, which was the the straw that broke the camel's back when it came to him placing a lawsuit. So he put his kind of money where his mouth was and, and said, no, like this is, this is wrong. And I'm going to do what's, what's best for, for not me 
individually, but what I think is best overall. And he uh, filed this lawsuit and he didn't get hired as a head coach this year. And it just recently came out recently. He, he did an interview where he reached out to Mike Tomlin for, it sounds like just for some advice and guidance, Mike Tomlin, head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, one of the most successful coaches currently in the NFL, Super Bowl champion, uh, one of the two black head coaches in the NFL, um, reached out to him for advice. And after talking to him for a couple of days, Mike Tomlin was like, hey, why don't you, we got a position here. I think he'd be great for our staff. So he joined the Pittsburgh Steelers staff recently as a, um, as probably the most overqualified um, individual uh, in the NFL coaching at, at one of those positions. I think defensive analyst is, is his role or defensive assistant. And this is something where it doesn't make sense that there's only two black coaches in the NFL. We got 70% of the NFL players are black, um, but we only have two black coaches and we only have seven general managers in the front office that are black. And this isn't about just like looking at the color of the employees, but, but when you look at that, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. Well, it doesn't make sense, but it, it, it well, but that depends on your perspective. Um, and I think that's kind of what we have to attempt to unearth today is what these perspectives are. And, you know, just kind of, I don't know. I mean, we obviously aren't the ones that are going to determine the credibility of any particular perspective. But I think that, you know, it's just kind of important to be aware of what those perspectives are and, you know, kind of flesh them out and, you know, see, uh, see where it all lands, I guess, um, without necessarily taking a side. So, you know, one, one perspective would be, of course, qualification. And if it's just that there aren't enough qualified minority or let's see, let's say non-white male coaches. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that's an interesting conversation to have. I don't what I see I don't know the that? ins and outs so I don't know I you would you would think there's there's plenty of college coaches that are black there's there's a good amount of coordinators that are black I think Eric Bieniemy the offensive coordinator of Chiefs has, has came up for for positions but been passed on I think what I do know is I the NF, I see the NFL as especially the head coaches as this kind of the owners tend to recycle and the front offices tend to recycle the same head coaches over and over again for some odd reason. Yeah. People get a boys club second, a third boys chances. Club. Yeah. So whenever you have this kind of boys club and obviously in the beginning stages of the NFL, it's going to be in the front offices and the coaching staff is going to be primarily white because of racial disparities back then. So if you have this kind of any place that is more of a boys club or more of a tight knit crew, that's going to be the last realm that becomes more becomes broken into that becomes more even that becomes less of a boys club um i don't want to name any names but the like mike mccarthy for the dallas cowboys like jerry jones the owner hiring mike mccarthy is is mike mccarthy a good nfl head coach i mean he did when he won a super bowl with aaron Rodgers, but after one Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers is, is do you consider that good? And kind of flamed out after that. It, does Mike does does Jerry Jones think he's one was the best 
head coach had the best, best skill as a head coach, or did he handpick him because he thought he would be the best fit for him to coach the Dallas Cowboys because maybe Jerry Jones wants right. to have someone that he's buddy buddy with or someone he can not control, but can relate to more. So there's, yeah. and that's what makes this conversation so difficult is because it's not, I don't, it's, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's really boss, possible to be entirely objective when it comes to a head coaching selection, you know, because the head coach is, is, is not, it's not just a, a technical role, right? It's not just about X's and O's. It's not just about expertise, right? It's very difficult to totally just objectify what a coach is. And, and coaches are different things to different organizations, right? Different owners obviously want a different style and they give coaches different levels of responsibility. Like in New England, right? You have a guy in Belichick that would be both coach and general manager, right? Uh, as opposed to in certain organizations, you have a coach that, like in Dallas, for example, who's almost not even really coaching, you know, entirely. So it's it's that, you know, you have such a, a wide margin in terms of the level of responsibility. And I, but one thing is, is, is sort of common for all coaches, it seems, especially nowadays, because the NFL is so huge, is that they're all going to be team spokespersons, you know, spokesmen, and, and, and they're going to be team ambassadors, and they're going to represent the team. Yeah, and their community. Right. And the, and the community, right? But and when I say the team, and this is kind of, again, one of these controversial areas, but I'm referring to franchise, right, as in the business, the company. Whereas some people see team as, you know, the, the, the players and staff, right? The workers. Um, They're part of it, but it's more. Well, they're certainly a part of it. But we were talking about the public face, the public image, which is really going to be the perspective of many of the, the owners, if not, if, not, if not all the owners, you know, their primary kind of perspective and, and or, or I should say interest you know, and, and, and how they're, how they're seeing things is that public image. And, and so when you, it's when you start getting into those layers of the conversation that it becomes very difficult. Mm -hmm. So how do you balance trying to find the right fit to, to be the head coach of your football team? Obviously you want to win games. You want to win the Super Bowl because ultimately that's, that's what all these owners got, got into it, right? Obviously they want to make money and, you know, winning a Super Bowl is going to, bring bring your value of your franchise up but it's also these guys are competitive and they want to beat each other and they want to win and they want to win a super bowl um so you you want to hire a coach that's going to get your team that's a good fit for your team to win the super bowl but so how do you balance that with also knowing that not only do i want my coach to be the best football coach for my team but i also want him want this individual to be the best face or pillar for my team to be someone that the community can rally behind and, and feel proud that that oh this is my this is my football coach this is the coach of my my football team do you want to add it like do you want this individual to represent more than that or do you just want them to to be the best best x's and o's guy 
like how do you balance that as an owner and is it our right as as fans or as individuals to say that you should hire a coach that exemplifies this and that or is it up to the owners in the, in the front office to make the decision whatever fits their their team <laughs> and that's such a it's such a difficult uh conversation conversation to navigate because i think you're going to have a lot of of, of different answers and when you if you were just kind of to, to to pull a random sample um it really depends again on, on kind of where you stand i uh, you know i think uh, uh i think the majority of football fans would say just give me the coach that's going to win the most games and i don't care about the rest right win the most games win the most games but then you know maybe uh from a an owner's perspective it's probably going to be more of make the most money <laughs> uh, and make the most money long-term. You know, these guys are thinking, these are people, you know, people that are, you know, two, three steps ahead um, in, in their, in their think, in their thinking and, and, and their vision for that organization. And, and so, you know, they're not just looking at what's happening now, but you know, what, what we're trying to do over the next, you know, three to five years or more. And, 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 you know, God, man, it's really difficult too because um, the way the the NFL is set up, and I, I don't know obviously all the ins and outs, but I, I I know enough to know that these are for profit organizations, right? This is not like a nonprofit kind of entity, right? So um, they sort of have a different, I would imagine, set of objectives. Certainly not especially their stakeholders, you know, which would include the various individuals and, and, and groups, you know, that have a financial stake in the company. And, and typically that's many people, you know, and, and that, that these, these folks are beholden to, uh, that they have to answer to, that have fiduciary responsibilities to the organization. Um, so it's a lot. There's a lot going on behind the scenes that I think none of us are totally privy to, and and it's tough, man. When you have that type of pressure and and uh, a lot of different interests behind it. Yeah, and and I don't want to get bogged down in it because we know the answer at the end of the day. They're they're guided by the bottom line and how much money they can make. And we know that down in Jacksonville this past season, for example, if the Jacksonville Jaguars were were, let's say. 13 and three or 12 and I guess we, they played 17 games this year. If they were 12 and five, instead of two and whatever, they maybe urban Meyer still. Oh, absolutely. would be. Yeah. I'll bet a hundred percent urban Meyer would still have a job despite not flying, flying back with his team and, and staying at a college bar and um, playing grab ass with some co-eds. It, it's something where at the end of the day, it's all about the bottom line we're not naive enough to, to say otherwise. Um, and that, I don't want to dive too much into that because that's, that's what runs all this. So how do you, how do we balance? Okay. We realize that these, these businesses are businesses, they need to make money and they want to make a lot of it. But at the same time, you could, you could still do that and do it with class or do still be able to contribute something else to society other than entertainment. But is it their, is it job, their job to do that? You know, I, I, I'm going to throw a curveball at you, um, and I'm going to I'm going to do it 
through a moment of mindfulness. Um, and, you know, I, there's a lot of storylines, like I said, a lot of controversial storylines out there nowadays uh, or out there in the last, really, I say two to three weeks. And one of the more recent ones is this incident with Coach Jawan Howard of the University of Michigan Wolverine college basketball team, uh, men's basketball team. Uh, he was, of course, a member of the Fab Five uh, that pretty much took the uh, college basketball scene by storm in the early 90s. He went on to uh, you know, have a pretty long NBA career, to, you know, kind of a journeyman. Um, spent, I think, most of his career with uh, the Washington Wizards. But, um, you know, <laughs> I bring this up. It probably seemed kind of random as certainly what a curveball is all about. But um, I, I, I wanted to bring this up in this particular discussion because, you know, obviously what Coach Howard did, Juwan did, uh, caught on tape, you know, slow motion, the whole nine, you know, didn't look great. And, um, you know, I think uh, he's been suspended. Uh, I'm not really sure what those terms are. Five games to the rest of the regular season. But the what's interesting is, um, so obviously, you know, wants a black coach, uh, the prestigious institution, uh, the high-level competitive sports or organization in the NCAA. And, you know, so, he, but, but he's in, in the public guy, you know, he's, it's, a, he's, he is squarely in the public eye. you know, it's a high level role. He's an alma mater of that institution and people love him. Um, in the spotlight. So this event, uh, and what happened in his role, it was, you know, no doubt, you know, national coverage. And, uh, and nowadays national coverage is not just about like, you know, a news headline at, you know, 6 PM on a Thursday, it's like social media, right? Like Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and memes and, you know, whatever, you know, and and this, that, this whole like thing, this whole machine, this whole like social media thing that that's like, you know, all the all the rave nowadays. Mm-hmm. And that really is like, kind of like the, almost like what if the media is the, um, the fourth branch of government, then I guess social media is the fifth. Right. Um, but anyway, like it, it seems like this kind of like most things are in this country nowadays, this polarized issue. You have kind of two kind of schools of thought. One of which seems to be that because Jawan is a, he's an individual, he's a human being like anyone else. He's an individual. Um, he was braced. He was, t- he was grabbed right by the opposing team's coach in a way that could be perceived as aggressive. Um, therefore he sort of, once the commotion happened and other touching apparently <laughs> ensued, Apparently, yeah, he, but, but the, it's almost like a, a, no, a narrative of self-defense, right? It was mm-hmm. like, he was sort of acting in self-defense or it defense was a reaction. Another, right. But one that would be justified because he felt like he was being threatened. Okay. But then there's this other narrative, um, which is also reactive, also reactive. That's one thing they have in common, but one that, uh, is more focused on 
the the I guess the way that he reacted, right? The manner in which he reacted, the mechanism, right? So now we're talking about, you know, he's like kind of throwing basically, you know, punches, slap, you know, whatever he did, um, which, you know, like certainly escalated <laughs> things, but, um, but I think there's this other kind of like undertone within that narrative that, um, you know, he sort of acted in a, in a manner that, that wasn't becoming right of, of someone in that role, right. A, a head coach. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. A leader of, of young adults. Right. And, and so then it becomes this whole thing of, well, should he be dismissed from his role as opposed to just sort of, you know, a minor, you know, reprimand slap on the wrist. <clears throat> um, and, uh, and is he, you know, does he represent the brand at this stage, you know, given, given this whole thing. So I, I just see this, I, what I see in the undertone, the reason why I brought this up is because there's this undertone, this undercurrent that I think that this narrative that I think it, it, it really, unfortunately, grows from the fact that Jawan Howard is a black coach. Okay. In other words, if he were white and the same thing happened, this narrative, the narrative of incompetence due to misrepresentation, so right, like, like, or, or misidentification, or like, behavior unbecoming like stuff that is not is not like us you know, stuff that we wouldn't do right like that narrative and there's a lot of different ways that goes right but is sort of the a similar similar trajectory of narrative to the uh brian flores situation because when these you know i'm just of the opinion because, and I have to say opinion because I, I'm not in the, these boardrooms when these meetings are going down, but it just, it feels to me that the reason, or at least part of the reason why there are so few black coaches and black executives uh, in the, in all, all of the major foot sports uh, leagues and associations by comparison to, I mean, you know, obviously a totally disproportionate number of, of white owners, right? I mean, just, and then the totally opposite direction in terms of like black players, right? So this is where things become so polarized. It's like almost you know, significantly majority white owners with a significant majority of black and minority players, right? And, and then the, the sort of like that midpoint in between uh, in terms of like leadership in a, in a, you know, role of influence within the, with these organizations, you know, that should be sort of a, almost like a balancing point. It be given the disproportion of, you know, in terms of ownership race and player race, we want to balance that out. I think that's what a lot of people feels like we need to have a, some sort of way to balance that. And if there's so many white executives and, and, and coaches, then it's just too much white influence. Right? Um, and, and it, but, but why, right? Why is it, why is it like that? Why is it still like that? And it, and I, and it seems to come back to this thing. It's like, 
are black folks going to represent us? And the us in this case being white owners. I, I think what we, we, see, we see that because the NFL, when, when, when a black coach is hired, oftentimes they're fired more quickly. And I think that relates to what you're saying where these majority white owners are maybe a little bit more reactive to whenever something goes wrong, whether that's losing, they get less leeway, or that's some behavioral issue, they get less leeway because maybe there is some sort of implicit bias. Well, you know, here, 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 let's, let's keep it real. Okay, let's keep it real. So these are very, very smart men. Okay, so that's you know, see, so and there, this is calculus, right? This is calculus. This is high-level calculus with a you know, big high stakes, right? Um, we're at the the big boys' table at Vegas, right? Like, and and so these these people, men and women, you know, because these these are oftentimes family family money. Um, you know, in terms of who's at the table and, and they're sitting around like making these decisions based on essentially risk analysis. Okay. And of course they're thinking in terms of like the, 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 the point of emphasis is their money, right? <laughs> Their bottom line. Like it's just, it's just, it's about the bottom line. It's about like the revenue and, and it's about an upper trajectory. Okay. We don't want any flattenings of any curves. Like we're just keep, we're trying to make more money every time, every year. And, and, you know, so we're, we're trying to keep this momentum going. And, and when you think about risk, I believe that in many of these, the, the minds of, you know, some of these owners that they would, they would, they would imagine that all things being equal, a black coach or executive would be higher because risk. Because they feel safer. It'd be higher risk and higher risk. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I, those are the things that I don't know. Right. Because I haven't, I don't have that lived experience, but I would speculate that it would be because of the lack of association okay. because they and lack of connectedness because they themselves are white they have old no white rich white money which most likely they their business partners their their parents most likely the money came from their parents their grand, great grandparents and most of the times the people they were interacting with business partners what have you were also white so maybe there's more of a connection to com comfort comfortability there and like you touched on just because like all things equal, just because someone comes from a different culture and has a different color skin, that in and of itself represents more of a, of a risk. And therefore you have to be, have higher standards or be more reactive if you fear that the, that money trajectory is slowing down. You know, one of the things that like, take you, you and I, for example, like I think one of the, benefits, you know, privileges, if you will, of our profession is that we get to meet a lot of different kinds of people, you know, and get to know on sort of, you know, you can say a personal level, a lot of different kinds of people. 
And, mm-hmm. and that experience, I think really, I think helps us, I could speak for myself as it certainly helps me in the real world, just connecting with different kinds of people and, and, and making, you know, kind of like, I think good profiles and, and good kind of assessments of, of who I'm dealing with, regardless of their race and regardless of their cultural background. But it's just because I've allowed myself to really, you know, kind of get to know so many different kinds of people through my profession mm-hmm. and just other things I've done in my life. As a psychiatrist, as a mental health professional, you get to know the intricacies of someone's most vulnerable parts. So you truly get to know that individual in, in a way that I think is rare. Obviously, there's not necessarily that reciprocation. I think self-disclosure as a mental health professional in certain situations can be appropriate, but it's not like we're also being as vulnerable as them, but we get to see a window into their life. So we have the privilege of, of being, I don't know how many clients or patients you, you see currently or have over your career as a physician, but you get to see thousands I mean, if you thousands, think about the whole tens, you know, of, tens of thousands, gamut. maybe of, I mean, look, you know, residents, I mean, you know, <laughs> it gets crazy, you know, one night in a, in a psyche are, at least at all of you, man, you could go through fit, fit 15 to 10, 15 to 20 yeah. right there, just right there. One night, boom, like easy. So <laughs> anyway, um, so you, I digress, you're getting but the, a, a, just a, this extensive yeah. mapping of, of mankind. And, and, and like individuality and how, how much people can differ, but at the end of the day, how, how similar people are. And I would imagine you feel the same way is like everyone has a unique experience, but everyone shares, everyone feels the same types of emotions and the same range of emotions. And that's what we all have in common. We all become fearful. We all become ashamed and embarrassed and scared. We all can love, we all can feel joy and euphoria. And at the end of the day, that's, that's how we can connect with people. And that's how we can better understand people is because we all, we all feel the same. Mm-hmm. We all, we are, I mean, there's rare exceptions, but we all are capable of feeling these same array of emotions. And those emotions can be strong connecting pieces. And when you don't have those experiences, um, they can be kind of ways, the differences that we have can be um, elements that disconnect people. And I think that's kind of what, what happened, for example, with the Jawan Howard situation and how that was perceived. I think it also speaks to how Brian Flores was likely perceived by the, the, the ownership group in Miami. It's just when you don't have the opportunities or take the time to get to know others on a personal level and have these connections, have these conversations, and you kind of live in a bubble, then what happens is you see you know, kind of how they engage and, and it's different than what you're used to. And you make oftentimes wrongful assumptions about those behaviors 
as being unbecoming, you know, as, as not representing your brand or your, your style. Um, when in fact, other people may see it completely differently, right? Because other people, mm-hmm. many other people, right, including like the, the players, the staff, the other coaches, the community, frankly, do have friends and associates and, 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 and loved ones and family members and everything who are people of color. And they completely understand what that is. And they're totally fine with it, totally connected to it. And so at the end of the day, the only person who's disconnected is in fact the owner, which is a pretty sad state of affairs. And it's a factor of, of race, but it's, it's also, I think more so a factor of the socioeconomic status, the strata that these owners live in, the one of one of one percenters, that's, such it's a it's a different world quite quite frankly it's fascinating how that separates us or separates people um just to give a little insight kind of personally like i work in the within the county department of mental health i service the county four days a week out of my 600 or so patients 60 percent are are black 30 percent hispanic probably 10 percent white versus I work one day a week private practice. So that's in, in individuals with insurance. Essentially this is, I mean, different areas in LA, but within one, two miles of each other. In my private practice, 80, 90% white, 10, 20% black or Hispanic. Um, so little things like that, we're talking one to two miles difference in location of where individuals live. We're talking people with private insurance, with jobs, are majority white, obviously in a higher socioeconomic status. And then you have the people in poverty with state-run insurance, Medicare, majority are black and Hispanic. So that's just shows you that out there in the world, there are disparities, there are inequalities based on how things have been in the past, but it's still very present in the future. And I see that every day, every throughout the week well, and the contrast well, between yeah. mon- one day I'm seeing patients with private insurance and they're mostly white. And one day I'm seeing patients with county insurance and they're mostly black or Hispanic. Well, and, and what would you say in terms of the difference in quality of care between the county run system and your private practice? So in the private, that's a great question. Private practice, everyone has an individual therapist, either a PhD clinical psychologist or a society clinical psychologist. And those therapists have the availability to do individualized therapy, pretty much any type of therapy, weekly. And if things are severe, twice a week. And the county, ideally, the system is placed where each individual, each patient has a case manager and a therapist. And the therapists are usually social workers. There's no real PhD or, or clinical psychologist or society clinical psychologist. But we're so booked out, they can only be seen once a month at most. And as we know, therapy once a month, that's not therapy. 
in my schedule and no. in the county is also I can only see the the patients once every three months versus in my private practice. Oh, wow. Even though I work one day a week, I could within that schedule, I could technically still be able to see them once a month, maybe up to twice a month. So there are disparities and obviously you're, you're, I'm working in both. So you're getting decent quality psychiatry, but well, within the private practice, the system is set up for better care it, it, versus in the county system, you're set up for care. Well, it, that's such an interesting way of, of kind of putting it because you're right, same doctor, but other than that, I don't think anything else is the same. So it is mm -hmm. not so much, it's a quality issue, not based on the provider, which is kind of the irony. It's based on the sort of quantity of the provider, <laughs> you know, sort of like, you know, the access to the provider. Well, here's the issue. For, let me just, let me just say this real quick. Cause this is the most frustrating thing about working in the County. Um, a lot of these individuals coming from these disadvantaged areas face a lot of trauma growing up. Majority of the individuals have faced trauma. And we know as psychiatrists, the best treatment for trauma is not just medication management, which I can provide. They won't pay, they don't pay me to do therapy, which I wish I could do, because that doesn't reimburse as much. These individuals need trauma focused therapies. That's the most effective thing to help with individuals who have gone through trauma their entire lives, who've had development. For traumas. example, do you like, can you throw some examples out yeah, there? Trauma focused, trauma -focused um, cognitive behavioral therapy, something okay. where you give an individual a safe space, a holding environment. First, you teach them skills, how to cope with negative emotions, how to cope with that feeling of hyper arousal, panic, anxiety, fear. Whenever you get triggered to think about your past trauma, the fight or flight gets triggered. And that you feel like you're gonna die, you feel that impending sense of doom. So you equip them with the skills to cope with that. Deep breathing, mindfulness, meditation, self-talk, gratitude, learning to ride the wave, things of that nature. Once you equip them with those skills, you provide them that safe space, you provide them that confidence, then you start to peel back the layers to have them be able to talk about the traumatic experiences. So you go over it with them in that safe place in that room. They can bring up these horrible memories. Those panic symptoms come to light during that setting. You have them stop, you have them do their deep breathing. Okay, the panic subsides and they realize I could have these memories, they can come back, but instead of being triggered to have a panic attack and to run away or to fight or to flight, I can withstand that. And eventually over time, the more you do that, the more you recount the trauma in a safe space with someone you mm. feel comfortable with. And you develop that confidence to be able to overcome or you detach that trigger, that panic trigger to the memory. You can then have that memory because that memory is gonna come, you want it to be able to come, but it's not gonna trigger that horrible feeling, that gut-wrenching feeling. And eventually over time you become, you, you free yourself from that horrible memory and it just becomes a memory so that takes time it takes, it takes a lot of resources yeah, yeah and, that, and that's, it does, that's the next question is like so how long does it that, take to that, learn? it takes a long Something time like and, that. and that's that's part of the reason why it's tough in the county because they don't 
have the resource or they say they don't have the resources to equip the system with qualified providers because it's not not every therapist can do trauma-focused therapy that requires a lot of training because that's so sensitive and that you could make things worse if you try to dive into someone's traumas without having the appropriate training so they don't have they don't they don't have enough money to hire enough therapists they don't have enough money to hire qualified therapists and the systems just aren't in place versus at the private practice we can get that going right off the jump. And then nowadays we're, we're looking into MDMA assisted psychotherapy where you can start to peel back those layers and go over those traumas sooner because you have MDMA on board and, and that obviously creates that euphoric feeling. Well, you know what, uh, it, it's, it's, it's so eye-opening to hear, hear you, uh, you talk about these things and, and the numbers you're throwing out there, you know, and, and it kind of makes me think about Medicare, you know, which you mentioned, which is a, a primary funding mechanism, you know, for some of these state insurance programs, um, and of course the Medicaid program, and you know, you know, certainly in the county, I mean, that's the primary servicer, right? And and did you know that the reimbursement, like the value that Medicare, the, the analysts, the, you know, these insurance analysts that work for that organization, they value for these, for this group, this, this population, the 30 minutes of, with a psychiatrist, like that 30 minute session, the 30 minute visit. So you said you're spending what one, one session, one 30 minute follow up every three months. Okay. So they value that more than they would value 60 minutes, so twice as much time with a therapist. Yeah. Right. And, and so if you're a, um, an institution that that uses Medicare and Medicaid funds primarily, like that's, that is how you, it's your revenue, right? That's your primary revenue um, is, is that, are those programs, then naturally you're going, your, your, your workforce is going to be primarily people that can provide psychiatry services, right? Because um, that's, uh, that's how you're gonna get the most value. But, but here's the thing, here's the thing. Trauma really gets better most holistically with therapy, with, you know, as, you, as, you, as you mentioned, trauma-focused therapy. You know, medications are great, okay, for what they're great for. They reduce symptoms um, and they can help kind of restore some sort of baseline functioning, right? But if we're talking about not just kind of keeping it together, not just kind of holding on to get by, but if we're talking about getting better, right? If we're talking about mental fitness, right? If we're talking about advancing our baseline, right? To become more resilient, 
less likely to develop symptoms, better coping skills, right? Better ways of coping with negative emotions, uh, better routines, better control of our lives. You know, those are the kinds of things that we can get from therapy and coaching, which is really what these folks in these communities need more than anything. In addition to trauma focused therapy. Yeah. One of the things I thought was so sad when I worked for this organization, you know, Department of Mental Health, I like you, you know, went in their bright eyed, bushy tail, thinking I was going to be serving the community, the people that need us the most. Come to, to find out that part of the game was that the vast majority of these people you're talking about who really were trauma victims and, and sufferers were identified sat so sadly diagnosed with 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 like schizophrenia schizoaffective schizoaffective disorder or bipolar disorders which uh really is 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 speaks to a such a, a high level of cultural disconnection and frankly racism institutional racism um, because as i went through um you know coming into this organization as the junior psychiatrist on a team of doctors that on average were about 75 years old. They were all foreign medical graduates, mostly from Pakistan and the Philippines. They had been with the Department of Mental Health for on average 25 years. I ultimately inherited their patients, you know, saw their notes, saw how they formulated their diagnoses, saw their their analysis and, and, it, and it was honestly, it was a joke. I hate to say it, it, it was a joke. It, it had no basis in reality and it was a complete disservice. And I would say at least 75% of the cases to these patients because I saw basically zero evidence of, you know, of psychosis. That's um, the concerning thing. And I don't want to take them off of these psychiatrists off the hook, but it becomes like a learned helplessness. Okay, you you can you diagnose PTSD. Okay, what's next? You can't. There's no way to get them this trauma focused therapy or any any like weekly therapy that they would need to get better. So instead, you pick out the the paranoia that they have from the PTSD. Not, but you 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 see. Okay, that paranoia is and psychotic in nature. So they have schizophrenia. Let's give them an antipsychotic because that'll numb them out at the end of the day, which can help turn the volume down on that fight or flight reaction. So they're not as volatile or reactive and they're not getting in as many fights. And, and maybe you can convince yourself that you're helping them in some sort of way, because what else can you really do if the, the, the resources aren't available to you to get the treatment they need, get them the, the group therapies and the trauma focused therapies and, and, get them engaged in the community somehow so they can create their own uh, positive social connections because they haven't had that in their life. It becomes demoralizing and, and you, but you, you feel like you want to do something. And so I can't necessarily blame those psychiatrists for, for kind of hearing something and all right, um, that's psychotic in nature, antipsychotic, boom, next. And what can you do? But yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating. So I don't, 
we we kind of got a little bit off topic, topic as we do. No, no, no. We always yeah. do. It's, it's going to happen at some point, but we, then we bring it back because what we're really the, like the, the reason we brought it up is because yeah. we're not just these sports fans that are are and me being a white male, it's like I don't really have those insights. But this, I see this every day. This is through my job. I see the different. I see the inequalities. Yes. And 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 the lives individuals live just because of the color of the skin or the location of their neighborhood. It dictates so much and it dictates the type of care they receive. And it, and it's, it's unfair. And that not only exists in our realm, but it exists in all realms of life. And the point is, is we want these businesses, we want all businesses to, to, take initiative to not only make money because you got to make money. We understand that this is capitalistic society, but you can still do that and push forward towards equality well, in an ethical way, right? It, there's got to be an ethics to everything. And that's what we love about sports as a business um, is that it promotes ethics and winning the right way, right? Competition, which we all love. That's what, you know, America is, you know, that's, that's who we are. Um, but the right way, you know, there's rules and there's order, law and order, and there's ethics, right? There's ethics and there's virtue. And part of the, I would say, the, I would say the, the fundamental ethic of sports, the sports tradition, and this is like for all sports, is the meritocracy, you know, and, and the, the, the notion that those superficialities, um, like, you know, sort of color, you know, things like body shape and, you know, things like hair type, right. And all these different things, uh, are just not how we're evaluating performance It's based on talent and skill. Right. One of which is sort of, you know, a, a tangible thing, right? Like you can develop a skill, right? Uh, great coaching, great you know, strategy and practice and so forth. We talk about this all the time. And then of course there's just some things you're just born with, but whatever the case may be, it's, it's sort of what you display in performance and and how you perform and you know what the the score is at the end of the competition that's all that matters um everyone has a place as long as you're willing to play by the rules right and you know compete everyone has an opportunity and that's what we love about sports um so with you know, the, the idea of who gets to participate at the coaching and executive levels, it should follow. It should be the same, uh, the same principles, right? Mm -hmm. Same principles as we, we, the things that we believe in as it relates to the players and the part and the performance and, and those outcomes, I think it's fair to say that should extend to the coaching staff and to the executives, right? <clears throat> Essentially the workforce uh, oriented around the performance. And um, 
I also think it's fair to say that we were not even close to achieving any sort of, uh, I think, level of fairness, level of equity in in this current sports era in terms of inclusivity. Yeah, yeah. and I, I will say, I think, I think we're, I mean, we're obviously heading heading in the right direction. So I think yeah. the fact that we're we're having this conversation and the fact that these conversations are being had, and that's what it's all about. It's about having the conversation. It's not about throwing things on from across the aisle at each other and being divisive and name calling. It's about having the conversation and coming up with solutions, coming identifying problems yeah. and coming up with solutions, not just identifying problems and canceling the problem, but identifying the problem and, and figuring out a way. Well, you're right. And I, and I would, I do, I do want to say this, uh, um, as, as just kind of a potential counter narrative to that. Um, because, you know, there are probably some people out there, I'm sure there's some people out there who, who would say that when there's an issue uh, as divisive as like a, a race issue, that the incremental, like small, steady incremental gains that can be had from, you know, just sort of like this kind of discourse and, and open dialogue and, you know, you know, kind of this slow and steady. You know, I think a lot of folks would say that it's just not enough, right? It's just not enough progress that the the discussions, the statements have been on the table for a long time. You know, it's just more a matter of had they been taken seriously enough. Um, and and I, I think there is probably something to be said for the I, the notion that actions speak louder than words. Mm-hmm. You know, and and activism. It, you know, has, has largely been viewed as something scary, right, in the public eye. And that's kind of what the Brian Flores kind of movement, if you want to call it that, or, you know, what he was, uh, I think, starting by going forward, going public and, you know, hiring his attorneys um, and kind of launching this investigation was, uh, you know, just sort of, it, it, I mean, it's activism. It's, and it's activism uh, to me in the most, I don't know, I, I, I think the, the, probably the way that it was always supposed to be, right. It, what, what, it, what that term really embodies. It's like, let's, we, you know, talk is cheap. There was New Jack City, one of my favorite movies of all time. Nino Brown, talk is cheap. You know, bullshit runs the marathon. I don't know what the hell he meant by that. It sounded really cool. And I, I will say this, um, activism in terms of, uh, you know, going on national television, you know, so using the, the you know, the, our, what we say the fourth, uh, fourth branch of government to your advantage and, you know, hiring some hotshot attorneys and, you know, calling out the, you know, the NFL ownership group, you know, that's, that's definitely putting your money where your mouth is. Um, so you, you have to commend mm-hmm. Brian Flores for, for that, yeah. you know, his courage. Uh, that was a very brave thing to do. I've never seen uh, an NFL coach step forward in a in the public eye in that kind of way before. Uh, and and I, I think what's happened since then is is kind of reward, a reward. You know, at, at one time, uh, going back to what you said earlier about him accepting that position, 
as an assistant coach in Pittsburgh. At one time, I believed that you know he, he he should not do that because it was an inferior role, and uh, you know his his obviously his goal was to be a head coach, and he's qualified to be a head coach, so you know he should he should stop at nothing less. But then I also realized that it it probably is um, it's probably the right thing because it shows his commitment right to the league. And unlike, you know, let's say like the Antonio Brown situation, right, where you have a person that seems like they're more intentional around, you know, kind of proving a point and, you know, kind of continuing a certain narrative of, of antagonism, um, it seems like... Well, even even you know, a less even a less caustic figure like Colin Kaepernick, who stood up for something he believed in and, and demands racial equality. He kind of went all in and, and left, left the NFL. And I think there, Brian Flores is showing a way where you can do both. Exactly. Right. So granted, like, yeah. Kaepernick's message is more all-encompassing about police brutality and inequality at large, whereas Brian Flores is more focused in on specifically the NFL's in a well, exactly, and and here's the other here's the other thing, right? That I'm not sure you know if if you know people have considered this, but I mean he's joining a a, a team that is head headed by a black football coach, right? Um, to that 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 should come as a surprise. I think that there's a statement there because you know especially if if we were to see you know that Pittsburgh team, you know, perform at a super high level next year with, you know, two black football coaches right at the helm. Like, like it, it kind of sends a message to, to the league, you know, that like, Hey, like we're, we're, we're good at this. Mm -hmm. Like we're, we're just as good as any, anyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and it, 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 it should, it should, it does not have to be about, I guess level of comfort, right, uh, or in level of familiarity, right. It doesn't have to be about those things, because here, here's one thing, man. And you said this earlier. I don't know if you if you remember, but I want to take you back to this. If there's any premise that all forces, all stakeholders, all stakeholders, including the fan base. Right, including the players, including the ownership, everybody can actually agree on. There's there are very few intersections when you have so many stakeholders, but one of them, and maybe the perhaps the only one, is winning. Right, if it's mm -hmm. you know winning, and you know maybe, maybe winning can mean a lot of things, but if if we're talking about winning in professional sports, that usually means you know success in terms of victories success in terms of relative victories from the year before and historic franchises like let's say a Pittsburgh probably means championships. So if, if we're delivering on that level, then what other basis, what other standard is more important than that or should ever be more important than that? Um, and even though these are true owners, like owners in the traditional sense, meaning this is a profit for profit company, and, and, and that means that they're, they're thinking about all kinds of different 
let's say they have, they're going to, they're, you know, it's their money. Okay. <laughs> you know, so they're going to have a personal interest in what's happening. And, you mm-hmm. know, you almost can't even really argue with that uh, to some extent, but no matter what, they're serving the community and they're also serving sort of a higher calling, which is, you know, this ethics that, you know, the ethics of sports and the traditions of sports. And if, if we're thinking about a meritocracy and we're saying that this is how we perform, this is how we play on the field, then this is how, how we also have to um, evaluate things in terms of our coaches and in our executive workforce. And from that perspective, winning is something I think that we can create as like a universal standard and say, uh, this is how we determine the value of a coach or an executive to this franchise. You know, maybe it's, you know, it would never influence the ownership group, right? And maybe the ownership groups will always be white, you know, who knows? I mean, this is something that other types of forces will have to dictate. But in terms of the workforce, I think the ethics should follow that winning, you know, be a standard we all can agree on for determining a coach's or executive's ability to to be hired and to be maintained, frankly, and embraced in a professional sports franchise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think winning, and then it com- comes back to what you were saying, fair play, like what we love about sports is it's an even playing field and we love fair play and we want to see that fairness, not only on the, on the playing field, we're all, we're obsessed with that. We, if you watch the Olympics, you saw that the, the Russian figure say, uh, Camila Valeva, she, a uh, 15 year old ice skater got caught uh, doping. And that was a huge controversy because we don't, we don't, we don't stand for that. That's, that's, it has to be fair play. And we just want to see this fair play also be with regards to it, individuals having a fair shot at being able to be coaches at being able to be GMs at being able to be in the front office at being able to, to pretty much do things that they're um, competent to do. That's what we want in our sports. And that's what we want. That's why we love sports. And that's what we want in throughout all of society. And you, you talked about earlier about advocacy and how it, it, I, I mentioned before that it's head, we're headed in the right direction. It's only a matter of time, but, but yes, we it it's something that if we if this is going to happen sooner rather than later, we need to. We talked about how the bottom line is kind of the driver for a lot of things. We need to be as individuals be more cognizant and aware of where we put our money. So it's, it's similar to what you said about what we talked about how Brian Flores kind of put his money where his mouth is or put his money up on the table. It's like I don't care about that. I'm going to take a stand. We as consumers, we as individuals, we need you to do the same thing with our money and our attention. If we truly care about advocacy and the push for equality, it can't be going to a, a march one weekend and then living the rest of our year doing whatever we want on social media. Oh yeah, we have to put no our doubt. activism. Yeah, actions speak louder than words, man. Exactly, we have to put our money where our mouth is, and that comes with where we put our attention where we put our actual money. So if you care about it, if you see that a business, whether that's a sports franchise or a restaurant or this new sneaker shop you like, if they are 
good ethical examples of what you want to see in society with regards to equality and justice, then give them your service. Elevate those companies. Elevate those businesses. But if they're not, then, you know, you got to speak out against that too. You can, Yeah, you can speak out against it. Or you could take your business elsewhere because it's your attention and your money that ultimately is going to be the driver within a capitalistic society. So if, say, you... Well, well wait, hold on. You're saying something really important, though, because, you know, take like Brian Flores, for example. What if the people of Miami, the community of Miami, the fans, like the fan base of the Dolphins, right? There's going to be all kinds of season ticket holders. That group of people, they, you know, that organization can't lose their business. Imagine if even, a, you know, I don't know, 10%, 15%. Of that group of people, come over to be a be a Steelers fan. Come root for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Said, hey, I'm I'm Easy. canceling. You know my my membership. I don't want to be a season ticket holder anymore. You guys don't have fair hiring practices. Yeah, that would be a huge statement, and the people can do that. You know, and I think that's what, that what needs to happen. I think it's, it's I think it's like yes, we have this nostalgia. We want to root for the teams we rooted for when we were kids. That are our father or parents rooted for our great grandparents rooted for or we want to root for the team that in the city we live in okay you can do that but I, well, this is what i'm saying is root for the teams or invest your attention in and time and money into the teams or the businesses that you think represent what what you feel needs to be represented with regards to, to justice and, and equality for everyone so if you're a Miami Dolphins fan, you grew up a Miami Dolphins fan, you were a big Brian Greasy, sorry, his father, Bob Greasy, fan. Nowadays, if you don't like what happened with them, hey, we'll welcome you with open arms as a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And maybe the Dolphins figure it out. They turn the ship around. You can go back down there. But that's what I'm trying to say. And that's, that's controversial right there. Cause then you're going to be called a fair weather fan and what have you, but no, it's, it's, it's about putting your money and attention where you feel. What, what, what aligns with, with your, with what lines with your priorities, ethics and your values. Exactly. Value. Yeah. And not just, just, not just somewhere because you've been conditioned or programmed to, to believe that that's where you need to put your money. Just because your dad puts you in a in a dolphin's jersey when you were five years well, old. Well, that's a good point, man. That's right. A lot of people don't realize. That, I mean, of course they know it, but they just don't like think about that. A, a, a sports franchise is a brand, just like anything else. Just like Walmart versus Target, you know, just like Starbucks versus Pete's, you know, or whatever. Um, that's out here out west for Pete's Coffee is great. Anyway, um, you know, it's a brand, so. Brands, most people, especially when they, like food is a good, that's a good one, right? Like people typically are going to go to f establishments for, for food, like restaurants that represent their, their dietary values or the dietary habits, their habits or their values, your habits or your values are basically the same thing. And the things you care about, the things you, you, you actually do. Right, not just things you say, but the things you actually do. Um, and so, if you're a vegan, you're going to go to vegan restaurants. If you're a vegetarian, so forth. If you love steak, you're going to be, you know, whatever. Like, and 
and and and that's because you have this alignment you know you of of brand and value and it's actually like that in all aspects of our lives for the most part like clothing right fashion yeah don't no more fast fashion but in sports it's like different you know i don't know if people don't necessarily have as much sort of subjectivity in a sense it's like they're they're just sort of going with well the crowd right like whoever whatever else is doing as opposed to like determining is this really an organization that aligns with my values it's like interesting because we were talking about this whole winning paradigm earlier right so it's like it's either about in some cases winning or losing right that's it mm -hmm. if they're winning i'm with them and this, this um, is why circling back why i like the chicago cubs culture because they were the lovable yeah. losers people stuck with them for so long despite them not winning and people didn't jump ship right so there's uh, like in my right. experience there's two different fans there's the ones that stick with their team and their rider dies and regardless of the, the 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 ethical values of that organization and or there's like the fair weather fans who kind of just jump to the teams that are winning because they like the way it feels and they they want to have the the upper hand on 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 their rivals or what have you but what we're saying is there's a new option mm -hmm. be a fair That's weather right. fan when it comes to ethics and your priorities this is a, no i don't know we i think I, I just thought about this today this could be its own podcast i don't know for sure hey it's a spoiler alert so go for but it but i think we've talked <laughs> about this before and like that's why the nba has become more of a an attractive sport in a way for me as a fan because you get a you get you you get to feel like you you have a better insight into the who the individuals are i think the nba does a a decent job at uh at, at being able to endorse or empower their their athletes and for good and for bad and social media obviously helps with that with without all throughout all sports obviously we don't know these individuals we don't actually know these individuals but you get a sense of like who they are and where their their ethics align and you can kind of align yourself with that as well if you choose to do so because then you're opening pandora's box because you actually really truly don't know these individuals so is it this goes back to my initial question and now we just did a whole podcast on it do we keep sports in this box of entertainment only and we're going to shut off our frontal lobes and and just ride the emotions of it or do we open it up and and just em embrace all parts of sports as something that's not only entertainment but it can be huge like huge yeah. movers of so social change so so this is kind of like tori this is almost kind of like the evolution of rap and hip-hop in the 80s when it was emerging from this sort of underground like you know clickish you know kind of geographically limited art form right into like this international phenomenon right it, over the course of around like five years or something like that it just exploded when it was still underground nobody was checking for him right like no one was like tripping about the content and then all of a sudden it became like right just it was just out there right it started you know exploding in terms of popularity and as the more traction it gained, all of a sudden, 
you know, these kind of notions of public enemy, <laughs> you know, started to, to, um, you know, enter the, the national public perspective and the public enemy being, you know, sort of this content permeating the airways never, never, ever, 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 ever in history of this country or probably any country, right? Just uh, seen or heard before stuff from black kids, stuff that was extremely controversial, hitting political topics and you know social topics, like sort of like in the vein of the civil rights movement, but with this whole other level of energy and power and authority and sort of anger, right? And rage and stuff like that. And it was really influencing people. We were talking about it. It a lot of chatter. So then what happens? The FCC gets involved, right? And all these, you know, it's like, and it becomes like this whole thing um, because now it's like, oh, we have to regulate. We got to regulate this stuff, man. We don't know what the, what the hell this stuff is getting out of control. So that's what has happened with sports in the last 20 to 30 years, right? It's like this huge international brand now. It's not just like this kind of like, right, you know, like working class American, fa you know, uh, friend, fan frenzy kind of th underground frenzy thing, you know, kind of like what they call a Bush League, you know, kind of like whatever. It's like the real deal. It's like international acclaim and people all over the world. It is like literally certain events that are the most highly televised events in the world. Yeah. In the world. So how, you know what I mean? Like, how can you not be responsible, you know, and, and regulate what's happening? Um, and do things according to a certain ethical standard, you know, and, 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 it's, and, you, and you, you know, universal standards, things that we all can yeah. kind of get down with. Yeah, man. Well, I like that. I like that comparison. And were you able to go to see the, the new Tupac exhibit downtown? No, no. I, I, I've been, I've been meaning to get to that. Have you seen it's it? It's actually at, out of all the, yeah, it was oh, nice. no, yeah, no doubt. Went a couple of weeks, weekends back out of all the, I think it's still going for a couple more weeks, but of all the like pop-up shop exhibits i went to like van gogh and i went to banksy the zupac one is by far the best one and it has a lot of um obviously his mom was a black panther and there was a lot in there about her and about that movement and how invested he was in that it, obviously about all his his talents and ambitions and yeah you got to check it out but um man this is it was a great kind of somewhat unexpected conversation i knew we were going to talk about the Brian Flores situation, but that, yeah, we we'll went totally to... off script. We went totally off script. We don't, we don't always, I think, yeah, this might be the most off script. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't talk about Tom Brady retiring. We had, let me see the notes. It said Tom Brady retiring, Sean White, Joe Burrow, Matt Stafford, the Rams. No, that's, that's not as important. So I'm glad we had this conversation. I think no doubt it, it is something where there's layers to it, right? Like obviously we talk about things that we have kind of personal insights into we talked about our, 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 our jobs and working here within Los Angeles County and seeing what we see on, on, on soil here, the dis disparities here. And you mentioned like sports being such a global brand and capitalism. And obviously there's issues with human rights 
violations all throughout the globe and and the relationship between the NBA and China. And then Phil Mickelson was recently in the news for talking about new super golf league that's backed by Saudi Arabia and obviously with their human rights violations. Now he, he's having sponsorships pulled. So oh, wow. this is, mm-hmm. this is a, a very interesting time to, to, to be alive because it's, it's almost like you can kind of pick and choose which things to, to get behind. And, and, and that's fine. I think we as individuals have to decide the, it's a difficult conversation to have, but I think the reason why we focused in on what we talked about today is because this is the things that kind of we see firsthand and not to say that things that are going on in other parts of the world are, are less important, but we don't know the intricacies of that. And that's when it gets really kind of fishy is when, at what point do you draw the line between at what point do you say, all right, what we're doing is ethical enough? Because if you, if you could argue, if you wanted to be someone who aligns 100% with only putting your attention and money towards things that are hundred percent ethical, you may decide that you don't want to watch the NBA. You don't want to wear Nikes and what have you, and that's okay. So each individual, you kind of have to make that decision for yourself. Absolutely. I just wanted to kind of throw that out there because I know you could find dirty laundry in any, anyone's closet. Oh my God, absolutely. Um, here's the thing, you really can't have a conversation about mental fitness and, and team chemistry and the importance of you know team chemistry to individual and team resilience uh, and development and not talk about issues of society and race because issues of society and race are so integral, so intrinsic to team chemistry. Yeah. And, and what's also intrinsic to team chemistry as it relates to sports is the meritocracy, you know, the, the fundamental sort of premise, you know, and, 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 and value, right. Of, of the meritocracy and what that signifies that, you know, we are, we're not discriminating on the basis of race, mm-hmm. color, gender, sex, you know, economic status. We're just, it's, it's that standard, right. It's so important to maintain in order for, in order to, for, for sports to, to always kind of be above, right? Always kind of have that, you know, that mystique, you know, that, um, that legacy, right? That we all love. Sports is a beacon of hope and I, and I want it to truly be that. That's right. Hey Amen. So it's been a great conversation and uh, I think it's going to go a long way uh, in, in helping folks to think about ways in which we can end the stigma. I could tell you the conversation. All right. Nice work.